Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me today is Nathan Fox in San Francisco. Nathan, how are you doing? I'm awesome. I, I just looked at our stats and I saw that we have one listener in Mississippi. So that's the uh, final U.S. state that we needed to knock off the list. Thank you <laughs> to our one listener in Mississippi. Um, we still have like 37 listeners in Libya and only one listener in Mississippi, but I guess uh, Mississippi will catch up. Hey, so that's great. So all, all 50 states and D.C. Um, yeah, and Puerto Rico, and there, there might even be a couple other territories we have. We've got all kinds of countries. Somebody in Iceland, I noticed. Iceland, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, good stuff. Well, that, yeah, that is exciting. Um, let's see here. So today we're going to talk about, we're actually going to respond to an email, right, and a blog post, some questions from our listeners and try to answer those as best we can. I think there are a lot of questions actually within both of these uh, emails slash posts. And, and then maybe talk about some LSAT-related topics at the end. So, Nathan, do you want to start us out with one of these? Sure, yeah. So um, our listener, Kent, made a post on our blog, and he said this. He said, hey guys, I plan on taking the LSAT next summer and only just started studying this week. Since my GPA isn't the best it could and should be, current cumulative 3.23 GPA, I believe I need to rely on a good LSAT score in order to ensure my admission into a good law school. I took my first prep test about two days ago and scored a 154 and would like to see that score range from 169 to 172 on the final go, uh, final go. However, I wanted to ask you guys, is it possible to overstudy for the LSAT? It might sound odd, but seeing that I have so much time before I take the test, I wanted your guys' input on how much I should study in the coming days, weeks, and months in order to improve that score to the desired range. Obviously, I need to focus on my GPA, and seeing that my first time prep test score was decent, what should I put more time and effort into? Additionally, how much will that GPA hurt me when I begin applying? I still have at least four semesters left until I graduate, and I can raise that up to a 3.5 or a 3.6 with the right effort, but I wanted your guys' input. Um, he goes on a little bit about, he says he's an English major. Yeah, okay, I think that's the, the bulk of it. Um, quite a bit there, I think, that we can talk about. Why don't you give it a crack, Ben? Okay, so um, some initial reactions I have, and this would ag agree with him, is that he does have a good starting score of 154. Um, it reminds me, I started with a 153. Uh, in terms of taking the, he, well, he said he wants to take the LSAT next summer, so I guess he's looking to June. And right, starting now, between now and June, that seems like a really long time. So I guess what I would say is yes, you can overstudy and drag this out longer than it needs to be. So what I would do is shoot, well, I would start studying and then see how it goes. But if his scores start going up and getting close to the range that he's aiming for, which is a good range, um, then 
look at the next available test and start aiming for that, not necessarily waiting until June, unless there's some reason that he can't take it in September or December. I mean, September seems a little close at this point, but this maybe, but uh, December or February, unless there's some reason he can't take it at either of those times, I would just up the date, take it, get it over with, and then keep the score, which is valid for three to five years anyway. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I think pretty much every school will take an LSAT score up to three years old. And I believe when I was applying, most schools were accepting LSAT scores up to five years old. Um, so most students think like they have to take it right before they apply to school, and that is definitely not true. Um, most sophomores or juniors could definitely be taking the LSAT and getting it over with. Um, what is that, Ben? I, folks like think some people just overestimate the amount of time it's going to take to study. You know, that's a procrastination technique, isn't it? it is it? I don't know. Uh, well, I'm I, a per, should... I guess I should speak because I'm I'm a procrastinator and. Um, one, when I, I you know try to, to try to conquer my own procrastination, I've read a little bit about it. And one of the uh, things that people frequently do when they are procrastinators is they will dramatically overestimate the amount of time that it will take to complete a project. And um, through overestimating, they then don't do anything at all. So just a very simple example of that would be like I'll have an email sitting in my inbox, and I'll, for whatever reason, I won't want to respond to it. And uh, it'll just be some issue where I'll, I'll make it into this huge hassle in my head, mm-hmm. and then I won't do it. And so then it'll just sit there forever, and I'll keep looking at it in my inbox, and I'll see like this thing, and it'll just be like, oh, no, that's going to be a huge hassle. I don't want to do that. And so I'll do something else, and then I'll come back to it, and I'll see it again, and then I'll, no, 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 I don't want to do that. It'll take forever. And then when I actually sit down and do it, I realize that the entire task takes me all of like, you know, 90 seconds to complete it. Yeah. But I spent like three weeks procrastinating on it. <laughs> so I, I don't know that that's what's happening with students who do this, but they, they do a lot of times have these target dates which are way out there in the future. And I, I just don't understand. I certainly would not be planning on studying for anywhere close to a year for this exam, I, I don't think. Do you? No, I think, I wonder if it, what it comes from is they, you know, you go online and you read about people who do take that long. And so then in an abundance of caution, maybe they're just saying, okay, well, I want to do the best I can do. And so maybe to get the score, that score, I need to plan on that much time or something. Yeah, that that makes sense too. Yeah, like over planning, um, over strategizing. I've actually seen people get themselves in trouble by doing this because they'll they'll push their study period for so long that then they'll only leave themselves one attempt to take the test. Mm, Yes. Yeah. Whereas, like my so my strategy for Kent would be like, okay, I, I might. Right now it's August 11th. I might not push you to take the September 27th LSAT, but I absolutely would be. I, I think I would be signing up for the December LSAT, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and give yourself yeah, that agree. target to shoot for, and then you can use February and June as your two backup dates. Yeah, 
No, I completely agree. I mean, there is a little bit of money here on the table, and that is if, let's say, he signs up for December and then decides that he's not in his score range, and since he has plenty of time, he decides just not to take it, which is a little bit of what we were talking about with Anne, right? She was saying, like, it can be a little irresponsible to take it when you're not ready or when you're not feeling well. Um, and, but... And so he might lose that money if he withdraws the night before or whatever. That said, I think shooting for that date, is he's going to see more progress between now and then because it's a hard date, because he's working toward that. Um, and that's going to be actually sort of rewarding because if you, if you do drag this out too slowly, every time you finally do sit down to take a test, you don't see that much progress because you haven't been studying that hard. And then... You know, that's discouraging in itself. But even if he, he doesn't reach that goal by December, the fact is I think he'll be a lot further along than what he would have been if he had just, you know, amorphously shot for June. And then he could shoot for February, and given the fact that he would have two more months, that would probably be more than enough to close the gap from wherever he's at in December. Yeah, and then if that didn't work out, he'd have all kinds of time until the June exam rolled around. Yep. So I think for the listeners, pretty much for everybody out there, if, if you have the LSAT on your agenda, if you know it's something that you need to get taken care of uh, anytime in the next few years, I would just go ahead and go to the LSAC website, look at the schedule of upcoming tests, and put those things on your calendar, and probably go ahead and register for the next one that you know something three months out that you can conceivably get ready for because you know work expands to fill available time and life you know gets busy and just things fill up and so i i like to ask people like well if you're not you don't have time now but are you gonna have time really you think you're gonna have time six months from now um most cases, you know, people end up with less time, not more time. So the best thing to do is probably to just put a hard date on your calendar and, and uh, make it real for yourself and start working on it. I, I, I totally agree. Um, there is one thing that Kent raises here, which I missed somehow or something, but he asks near the end, how much will my GPA hurt me when I begin applying? And I would say the short answer to that is... Uh, the the more competitive school you're looking, the more competitive the school is that you're looking at, the more important that GPA becomes. Um, it's still not as important as the LSAT score, but at these top schools, it is going to matter. And so he says he has at least four semesters left, and he thinks he can raise it from a three two up to a three five three six with the right effort. Um, how important is that? And I guess that might affect our advice on the LSAT, right? Maybe because then he's focusing more of his efforts on school instead of the test. What do you think, Nathan? Okay, yeah. I mean, he says he has at least four semesters left. That makes me think that he's halfway through school. Mm -hmm. So for his first two years, he got a 3.2. And then he's projecting, he's saying, well, in my last two years, I could raise it up to a 3.5 or a 3.6. That's I'm assuming that's with straight A's. Yeah. So he's gotten 3.2 for two years. Now if he gets straight A's for the next two years, he could raise it up to a 3.6. That I mean, that makes sense. Like it's possible, right? Theoretically possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
maybe it's just because I'm a bad student, but it seems unlikely. Um, in my experience, getting pretty much mediocre grades for my entire life, I had many moments where I thought I was going to turn it around, and I just never did turn it around for whatever reason, yeah, mostly because mm-hmm. I just wasn't that interested. So uh, that's, you know, people do, obviously, people do turn around their grades. And I, I wouldn't tell Kent that grades are not important. Um, but my concern would be that it might take like a heroic effort over the next two years to raise his GPA to a 3.5 or a 3.6. And another route that he could go is to just make sure he gets himself his 170-something. Because if he gets a 3.2 and a 170-something, he's going to get some pretty attractive offers. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what do you think, strategically? No, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about the going from an A- minus to an A or from an A to an A+. Plus, that those, those last increments of improvement take probably just as much time as it is to get an A. It's A like an 80-20 rule, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the hours that would be put into m- moving up your grades in those last two years um, might, might be better spent on the LSAT. Just like, even if, you're, even if you do spread it out over time, which is not what we're thinking or suggesting, but... Um, just in terms of how much time do you have, how are you going to allocate that, some of it should go into grades, especially if you can show that, you know, if, if you start getting A minuses, the, the rest of your uh, average for the, your last two years, you can at least show, you know, that your grades went up, even if because you don't have A's, you're not going to bring them up to a 3.5, 3.6, the average may be a 3.4 or something, but you can show that, hey, look, near the end of my college years I had higher grades this is really more where I'm at and then use the rest of that effort to hit, hit a home run with the, the LSAT yeah I mean I just don't know that that you're right that it's nice to show an increasing trend and through an addendum like you you can I think marginally improve your candidacy by pointing that pointing out like hey you know I, I got a 3.7 for my last two years and that so that's a lot better I for whatever reason, I became serious about being a student, and I got a three point seven. But like, that's not going to change Stanford's mind. You know, I I, I hate to say it, but it it kind of seems like maybe the ship the Stanford ship has already sailed for someone like Kent. I don't I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but what do you think the twenty fifth percentile GPA GPA is at Stanford? Uh, I don't know, but I'm I'm not saying that. I guess what I'm. I'm arguing is that I think good good grades are important, but I wouldn't go as far as he's saying. You know. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm agreeing with you on that. We we definitely are are agreeing that like if it's going to take you a hundred hours worth of additional effort to get an A instead of an A minus, mm-hmm. that hundred hours would be better spent just getting a one seventy three instead of a one seventy one. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Right. I mean, um, that's a bigger lever. Yes, for sure. It's two points, but it makes <laughs> a much bigger difference. And I would, yeah, I would have to agree with you about Stanford or Harvard, Yale. These schools aren't going to worry so much about the GPA, given the fact that it's already started out pretty low. 
Yeah, I mean, it, he, he's not going to raise it up to a 3.9, and it's probably going to take a 3.9 to get into a place like Stanford. So, yeah. so if he's, you know, and I think what he, what, and what, what students generally need to do, they need to not look as much on like the bulletin board forums where people are talking a bunch of shit about how, oh, I studied for two years for the LSAT. And they need to instead start looking at the publicly available data from the schools on the profiles of their incoming classes. Because I think that that data can tell you quite a lot about some of the strategic decisions you should be making. For, for example, I think if Kent looked at the numbers for Harvard, Stanford, Yale, he would realize that even if he does raise his GPA to a 3.5 or a 3.6, he's still probably not getting into Harvard, Stanford, Yale. And then if he started looking, you know, let's say he was looking at a school just outside the top 14 or something, say he was looking at like a UCLA. I imagine that if he looked at a UCLA, he would realize that raising his GPA from 3.2 to 3.5 or 3.6 might not actually matter that much if he can get himself his 172 LSAT score. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, the truth is, if you're going to go to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, you need to do everything. Like, you need to do all of it almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. So, there, we almost have no advice to give. It's like, yep, just do everything. Do everything perfectly. But yeah. <laughs> for, for the 99% of people out there who aren't going to go to Harvard, Stanford, or Yale, um, y- you are for sure better off pouring your additional time into your LSAT score than, instead of, than, than your GPA. Yeah, I'm not saying don't go to class. I'm just saying bring your LSAT shit and do your LSAT thing while you're in class. No, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I just like the the Herculean effort that's required to to raise your GPA is probably it's probably not worth it. Yeah. So basically, in short, if you can raise it a little bit without much effort, that's obviously worthwhile. But you really have to consider how much effort you're going to put in to make that GPA go up and whether that's worth, whether that effort should be just put toward the LSAT. Yes, absolutely. That's definitely what I'm saying because a 170 something is going to open up lots of doors. You know, 170 something puts you into the 75th percentile at almost every school. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden they have to consider you. You know, they know that you have the horsepower. They know that you're going to raise their LSAT profile if they admit you. Mm-hmm. And you know, if they look at your 3.2 and they say, "Oh well, you know, he kind of did it. He didn't do great, but maybe he just didn't care that much. Maybe he was bored. Maybe whatever." But we know he's got the horsepower to compete at our school. I just don't know that the 3.2 is going to really hold you back. At, at very many schools, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anything else in this post that we wanted to talk about? Oh, just the thing about overstudying. Um, yes, absolutely, you can overstudy. I see it all the time. Um, people burn themselves out, and they their scores will start to drop because they've been studying, you know, every single night after work. For mm-hmm. five hours, and they're just like you can see the bags under their eyes, and they're just like really dragging. Yeah. Um, if that happens to you, then it's definitely time to take some time off. 
he he is asking here, you know, how much time should I study? How much should I study in the coming days, weeks, and months? Mm-hmm. There, that's I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I say I always just say do a little bit every day. What do you say? Oh yeah, same thing. I mean, this kind of gets back to the, remember the flossing two teeth as opposed to your whole mouth. Right, right. Because <laughs> it's easier, and I think it's better to go consistently. One thing that happens a lot here too is that students will. Um, I mean, DC is a, a hardworking town, so people will work uh, early and they'll get off six thirty seven. They'll get home, and then they'll they'll tell me that they study for three or four hours. And what I try to convince a lot of them, I mean, everyone's different. Everybody has different ability to endure, but. I'm thinking this is the same sort of trade-off with hours. Instead of hours for your GPA or your LSAT, I'm thinking hours for your LSAT or for your sleep. Because I feel like when people are well-rested, they do better on the test. So that's 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 an investment of time into your just mental well-being, which can then increase your score, ironically, with sleep, doing nothing. So... I'm not saying they should go home and do nothing, but I'm saying instead of studying for three or four hours, they should study for maybe one. Yeah, I see, the, I see the same thing. I mean, all of these future lawyers of America are a bunch of hardworking folks, even in San Francisco, right? I mean, we have sort of the stoner, hippie culture here, but uh, not so much in my LSAT classes. I mean, these are people, <laughs> they're yeah, coming, they, sh- they roll in for my six o'clock class. You know, I've got like my jeans and t-shirt on and I've been playing video games all day. And they roll in after like commuting into the city and then working all day in a suit. And now they're like sitting for a four hour LSAT class. I just can't believe how they even get it done. Um, mm-hmm. That's one reason why I assign, you know, a little bit of required homework and a lot of optional homework because I just want to give people a chance to not make their eyeballs bleed on the homework. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it it's it's different. This is different from a from the tests that you took in college. There is no memorization for one thing on this test. So I think that maybe the like. Four hours a day, just drilling it into your head might work on a test that has memorization on it. But this test is much more a test of like focus, forcing yourself to pay attention. Um, and there's a performance aspect to it, which I think you're just not going to perform that well if you're not well rested. So mm-hmm. I so the burnout can definitely happen on the on the LSAT. It's I, I think less is more to in a, in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are definitely people who do too little. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, right. But so don't take this to mean, oh, I don't have to do anything. But I would definitely, at least from what I hear you're saying, Nathan, that a lot of people might be studying too much and they just have to look at how much sleep they're getting and whether they're rested and whether they feel good when they go into their next study session or not. And if not, Take a day off. I get a lot. A lot of times, I tell people, "Hey, just take take this. Don't do anything this Saturday." And they're like, "Well, I have to. I have to. This, the test is like <laughs> right around the corner." And I understand that. But if you look at all, you have fifty days between now and the test, or whatever. And it's like, let's just take one of those days and invest it in like recharging you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they should definitely be 
focusing on sleep, focusing on diet, focusing on exercise, all of that stuff is sort of necessary. I mean, if that stuff is not running efficiently, they're just not going to get the best LSAT score they could possibly get. So if work has been totally burning you out and who knows what else, you've got kids and family stuff and school stuff for a lot of people, um, definitely take, you know, you, you don't need to be doing two full LSATs every single day or whatever these crazy people do. Um, do a little bit maybe, you know, do like a couple logic games on your lunch break and then call it good. Um, Taking a day off is fine. Just don't take four, four days off. I guess that's the other risk huh, of of the burnout is that you can then you can burn yourself out to where then you you like you just shut down like you just put the books in the corner and that's when they start gathering dust. Yeah, and you start getting out of the mindset and what you were learning and thinking. Well, then that's when you know you've gotten these calls and I've gotten these calls where somebody calls you up 18 months later and is like, hey, Ben, um, yeah, I'm studying for the LSAT again. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, again is the right word because there's no way you've been studying for the LSAT for 18 months. So, you know, for whatever reason, you, you like went into shutdown mode. I really like the idea of just doing a little bit every single day. So I, I think that's maybe yeah. our advice for Ken. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, hey, you know what? I've been meaning to ask you. Can I get an update on your meditation status? Oh yeah, certainly. Um, so I, I find it really helpful, um, and the more I do it, the faster I sort of get into the the right mindset. And it has this weird. Okay, so I'm just gonna go up out there with my experience in it and anyone who's listening can can laugh at this or say this is totally loony but this is this is my experience so when i listen to this meditation track which is either nine minutes or 26 minutes i usually listen to the nine minute one because that's all the time i i really maybe have this uh, is uh sam harris's guided meditations by the way if you just google sam harris meditation you'll find it but yeah okay go ahead ben the nine minute one yes perfect thank you so <laughs> um while i'm listening to that it, I, I the whole point i think of him walking people through this meditation is he's trying to help you separate stimulus in the environment from your awareness so that you when you feel uh, pain or sadness or happiness anything um even just like your your body moving or whatever any sensations or sounds that you feel that you can then recognize those sensations for what they are and then decide what to do with them and so in my experience when <laughs> My kids are doing something that are maybe something that is a little bit annoying because kids have a tendency to do annoying things. Although I, I love them to death, sometimes they they do things that are a little annoying. Um, it's weird because I will. It's like I've developed this mental switch in my head where I can sort of start to separate the external stimulus from 
my reaction so I have like a little bit more time to decide how I'm going to react as opposed to just sort of reacting. Um, I don't know if this is making any sense, but the I, the relevance to the LSAT I think is that a lot of people feel anxiety and I feel like it's it, it can develop your ability to respond to those feelings in a way that is beneficial in the sense that you say, okay, I'm feeling anxious and I'm just going to refocus. It's, it's all, a lot of it's about focusing um, your consciousness, like what you're actually thinking about in the moment on whatever you decide to focus on, as opposed to just the thoughts that come into your head or the feelings or the various stimuli, stimuli I've been talking about. So I've just been talking for a while. What do you, what do you think, Nathan? Have you tried it? Yeah, I I have. Um, I've done that same nine minute one um, many times. I've mm-hmm. discovered that I can do it while I'm driving, which is kind of cool because um, you know you don't you don't have to close your eyes or anything. It's just like listening to a podcast. Yeah, so yeah. you can listen to it on the train. You can listen to it while you're driving. You can listen to it while you're walking around. Uh, I was practicing for a golf tournament over the last couple of weeks, and so I was uh, I was actually listening to that nine minute meditation while I was out like hitting putts. Okay, yeah. Um, I think you describe it pretty well. I will link to this in the um, show notes, by the way, so if anybody wants to find it, you can just go to our website and uh, thinkinglsat.com and you'll find the uh, links to the Sam Harris meditation. Not that he's like our guru or that he's like the only guy who does this, but I enjoyed it quite a bit and I wish I did it every day. Um, I set a reminder for myself to try to remember to do it every day, but for whatever reason, I still just haven't found a reminders application that works for me. Um, Yeah. We should talk about that too. I mean, just like productivity stuff, but I'd be interested in hearing if you've got a good reminders app that you'll actually listen to. I just get the reminders and I just don't do anything about it. But anyway, (laughs) um, I found that the, the, that specific meditation it is very useful for reducing anxiety. Um, I don't get anxiety when it's you know related to the LSAT, right? So that that's not going to work there because I don't have any problem there. But mm-hmm. I have anxiety about let's say certain. I don't know. We all have anxiety about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think you're right that noticing the difference between the stimulus and the response. Like noticing the difference between the thing that's making you feel anxious and your actual feeling of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And just noticing that where that feeling of anxiety comes from and remembering that that feeling of anxiety is not necessarily part of you. It does not have to be part of you. You can kind of choose whether you want to tune into that feeling of anxiety or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is a stupid example, but just I, I had an I had a, a thing that happened just the other day where I where that the meditation totally helped me, which was this is stupid, so people are gonna think this sounds ridiculous. But I went out to eat with a bunch of friends and we got seated in a booth and it was me and five dudes. And so we're all like relatively kind of big dudes and um we get seated in this booth and I, as they're as they're sliding us into this booth, I'm realizing like, oh man, this is going to be a little bit of a tight squeeze. 
and mm-hmm. and I start thinking like, couldn't they have seated us somewhere else? Oh man, this is going to be really uncomfortable. This is going to be hot. I can. Should we ask? Should I do something? I'm like, my eyes. All of a sudden, I notice that my eyes are like frantically scanning around the restaurant, like looking for somebody to try to catch somebody's eye to like see if they can seat us, seat us somewhere else or something. And I all of a sudden just like catch myself, and I realize like, dude, what the fuck are you doing to yourself? Like, why are you doing this? This mm-hmm. is this is like it's not. You're not breaking rocks. You are sitting shoulder to shoulder with some dudes that you, they're your buddies anyways, like you don't care. And Mm -hmm. it, it, it was unbelievable because the second I noticed what was happening, the rising anxiety, it's like all the air just went out of the anxiety balloon. It was just like completely gone. Yeah. And I just, and I, I was left with this very calm kind of realization that like, all right, this is not your perfect situation. You're not like completely 100% comfortable here, but it's not like anything bad's going to happen. And you're choosing to have this panic attack that you just don't need to have. Yeah. So, anyway, that's in a very dumb context, a very simple context, but I absolutely think that that can happen. I mean, I could see rising panic happening on the logic games when somebody's like, oh boy, this is an unfamiliar game. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. No, well, I think a lot of it is like little things too, right? Like someone is underlining on their test and that's making noise and that's frustrating you, but just becoming aware of that and aware of where that frustration is coming from, it's easier, I think, to then move beyond it. So they're small, but they're kind of big, you know, at least in the moment. And so overcoming that is is important. Cool. Well, I guess it sounds like we, uh, the Thinking LSAT podcast is unanimous um, in recommending meditation or at least this one specific meditation. So that's a Sam Harris thing and we will will link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to check it out. Um, Should we move on to this other, other email? Yeah. Okay, so I've got this one here, and I'm just going to paraphrase. Um, so this comes from Eric. Eric says, Hi, I'm, I'm a very recent follower of the podcast. I heard the episode in which you talked about the shortcomings of Kaplan as a company. Um, and he has a few questions. Now, first of all, I don't think we did not have an episode where we talked about the shortcomings of Kaplan, did we? No, it was just... Um mentioned in there at okay. some point. Okay. So we did uh, we did not do a, a focused episode about <laughs> Kaplan. Although this might turn into a focused episode about Kaplan. We'll we'll see. Um yeah, yeah. Oh, but I'm going to start off by saying uh that Eric is studying for the September 27th LSAT. He's a Kaplan student and he says he has been very pleased so far. He says his first diagnostic was a 158, and now he's been somewhere in the 160s. He's dedicated to studying and distinctly aware of the kind of time commitment that will be necessary in order for me to get my score into the 175 plus range, which is my goal. That's a very lofty goal. He says, in practicing individual timed sections, he's done well enough on any one to ace the test if he took his best sections on each one. Okay, yeah, that's good. Um, And here's here's his question. 
Are Kaplan's methods so bad that I am impeding my ability to get a 177? I already feel like I am smarter than my teacher. That having been said, there are some in the company that have been very helpful and knowledgeable about the test. Um, which are the specific methods that you find so backwards about Kaplan's ideology? Um, uh, a couple other questions, but I think that's basically the, the bulk of it. So it sounds like you had something to say. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, I guess in some ways I'm, I'm not really qualified to talk on Kaplan's methods because the last time I looked at them was about six years ago. I remember thinking that some of the diagrams for the games could have been done a little differently and then, in my opinion, a little bit better. But that was a long time ago. I don't know what's happened since then. And that was just the games. I don't remember anything else about any of their other sections. But I do think he does raise an interesting point here, which I do think is Kaplan's fault, and I will call them out on that. And he says that he already feels like he's smarter than his teacher. And I think this is what we talked about before, but I would say this is completely Kaplan's fault because they have a hiring standard that's low. It doesn't mean that they can't get great teachers, but because they have this as a policy that they're they're willing to hire people who have scored a 163, 164 or higher, and those people don't, I, from what I understand, they don't have to have taken the test officially, I would be... I'd be really nervous about taking a class there because I wouldn't know whether or not I would get a teacher who knows how to score where he wants to score. Now, it sounds like he's gotten some help from other people in the company, not necessarily his teacher directly, so that's that's great. I would my my guess is that it's kind of lucky, just depends on what office he's in at Kaplan, but as for their methods, I I don't know. Do you have any Thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, so Kaplan is a huge company. And the first thing that I would say is with any of the chain prep companies, you it's going to be hit and miss based on who you get. So there are great teachers at all of the, at all of the prep companies. Um, there are good and bad people everywhere. And I think that's going to apply inside of these companies. So I think you can get awesome teachers that are really dedicated and I think you can get poor teachers who are just there making a little bit of cash, you know, on their way to their JD and then they're out of there. Um so it, it sounds yeah, you're you're right. I I definitely know and yeah, I mean I can't speak for the 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 whole company of Kaplan. I don't know. Um but what I do know is that I applied for a job there once as an SAT teacher, and they said, we don't have openings for SAT teachers. Can we hire you as an LSAT instructor instead? This was in Boston mm -hmm. a few years ago. <clears throat> and I said, um, what's the LSAT? And they said, oh, well, that's the law school admission test. If you did good on the SAT, you'll probably do good on this too. So they gave me a practice test, and they sat me in a room by myself, and they said, yeah, take this practice test and see how you do. And so I took the practice test. I'm not even sure if it was a real practice test or not. And then the, the lady came back into the room when I was done, and she scored my practice test, and she said, holy shit, Like that's the highest LSAT score I've ever seen. You're hired. And <laughs> so 
they hired me on the basis of not even a real LSAT. I mean, it was a I took the test by myself in a room, no proctor, and they said you're hired. So, you know, that hiring standard is not very rigorous. And then the other thing is that yeah, they they do have pretty low scoring standards for their teachers. So, mm-hmm. I just I can't imagine an LSAT class being taught by someone who scores a 164. That's yep. that seems absurd. Um, at a blueprint or a power score or a test masters, they're going to have higher scoring standards. So there, you have to score one seventy three or higher. You have to score ninety ninth percentile, um, which is certainly better. And those those chains pay their instructors quite a bit more as well. So that's the other thing about Kaplan and Princeton Review is that last time I checked, they were paying their instructors like twenty dollars an hour. Um, yeah, twenty. Well, it's one of the. Go ahead. It, it's crazy. Well, it's one of the ironies because at Kaplan you pay a lot of money. You pay more for a Kaplan course than you pay, for, say, for my class. And I think a lot of people sometimes look at that and they say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, I'm Kaplan's class is is more expensive, and yours is cheaper. So you know, you get what you pay for. But the irony is that the teachers are getting paid. I mean, multiples, you know, less at Kaplan than they would here or at some of these other places. And so you're actually, you are getting what you paid for. Unfortunately, you don't realize where that money is going. Right, yeah. I mean, I I would think that anybody who was a successful Kaplan teacher would jump ship and go to Testmasters or Blueprint or PowerScore where they could make... Fifty or sixty or a hundred dollars an hour mm-hmm. teaching hour, um, but then even that at at some point, if if you're me, um, you, you're going to be teaching for PowerScore and you're going to be seeing where you're going to be looking and at the number of people in the class and the number the amount of money that you know that the people in the class paid, and you're going to be thinking like, man, PowerScore is making an awful lot of money off of this. And they're mm-hmm. only paying me fifty dollars an hour to teach the class. Well, mm-hmm. why don't I just go teach the teach? Why don't I go start my own thing? And you know, yeah. So, I guess that, I mean we're getting away from the Kaplan thing, but it does seem to me that I, I just don't know who in their right mind, if they were good at teaching the LSAT, I don't know who in their right mind would continue teaching the LSAT for Kaplan for twenty dollars an hour. Yeah. So really quick, back to his question. I guess he's saying are met, are the Kaplan methods impeding his ability to get a 177? I, I think probably not. If he has help from people who have scored that high, which it sounds like he does, right? He says some of the people who seem very knowledgeable and helpful about the test have helped him. Yeah, so, he just says they've been helpful and knowledgeable. I mean, I do... I think there are a couple of fundamentals that Kaplan gets that they get terribly wrong. Okay. Um, the first is, and this is something that a lot of people get terribly wrong, but Kaplan definitely teaches people to read the question stem first on the logical reasoning. And I've been yelling about this on like every episode of the podcast, but I really think that reading the question stem first is holding a lot of people back. It's holding them back from just taking an aggressive approach to understanding the stimulus on the logical reasoning. 
And if, if you read that question stem first, I think it gets you looking for shortcuts. And there just really aren't that many shortcuts, especially not if you're trying to get a 177. So I, I would definitely say that strategy is probably hurting him. But you know, here, here's another strategy that Kaplan teaches, which is um, do the easy questions first. Do the easy logic games first. Mm -hmm. Go through the logic games section and pick out the easy games and do those ones first. What do, what do you think about that? Uh, well, people are going to have trouble figuring out which one is the, the easy ones, right? So, That's yeah. A, yeah, I mean, and that, like, I, you know, I rescue a lot of Kaplan students, right? I, I, and I'm sure you do, too. I'm sure you get a lot of people calling you up saying, well, I took Kaplan, but I really haven't got what I want to get, and, you know, can you help me? And that's one of the things that they they come in talking about is like, well, yeah, you know, the first thing I do when the logic games start is I start paging back and forth through the games and picking, you know, I, I did this game first because it looked like the easiest one. And then mm -hmm. I say back to them, okay, yeah, no, that was probably the hardest game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it was an ordering game, it was a sequencing game, whatever you want to call it, but it was actually the hardest game in that section. Right, right. And so, so that I think that strategy, it's it's like it's almost like that's all I need to read in a in a Kaplan book or in any prep book. When I when I open it up and it says pick do the easy logic games first, to me that's like all right, I'm done listening to you, because mm -hmm. not even a really not even a professional can just glance at the games and tell which ones are going to be easier. I mean, I can't. Yeah. And sounds like you can't, Ben. So if we can't, then nobody can. Yeah. So that's just a, you know, to me that's a, I don't want to accuse them of being like disingenuous, but it seems like it's an awful easy thing for them to teach. It's, a, it's like a strategy that people can latch on to where they're like, oh yeah, cool. I, did, I never would have thought of that. I don't have to do the games in order. I can just look through the games and pick which one's easy and do those ones first. But it's like you've, you haven't actually learned anything with that because all you're really going to do is you're going to, one, you're going to waste time paging back and forth between the games and comparing them and trying to figure out which one's the best, which one's the easiest. And then you're very likely going to end up doing a harder game than you would have done otherwise because the games tend to be presented in increasing order of difficulty. So if you just start with the first game, you're probably doing the easiest game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, and we have no idea here from um, from Eric's email. We have no idea whether he's doing that kind of selection, but just that's a strategy that I I think is really terrible. Um, he also specifically says, "What about reading comprehension?" He says that Kaplan has taught him to read the passage and make an outline. And then he says, I almost never make an outline. <laughs> Which, to me, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, that, that's another thing that Kaplan and a lot of other prep companies teach people to do, is they teach this like technical approach on the reading comprehension, and they teach people to make little lists and little outlines and stuff. And I, I just don't... I don't know anybody who's good at the reading comprehension who does that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I agree. 
I, I mean, I almost never write anything actually in the reading comp section. So, right. So that's another one of those things where, like, I if if someone says like, "Hey, evaluate this this LSAT book," you know, you're you've written five LSAT books. Why don't you take a look at this one and tell me what you think? If I just cracked it open and I saw some lesson on reading comprehension where it was telling people to make an outline, I think mm-hmm. my eyes would be rolling backward, like out of my skull. And I would just, it's like, <laughs> okay. I, I just don't know anybody who's good at the reading comprehension who would actually do that. So mm-hmm. this is a lesson. Who is this lesson for? Or what is this lesson for? I mean, don't you want to teach people how to be good at the test? Mm-hmm. I, I don't get it. Yeah. So if we could take a, a minute to talk a little bit more about your ideas on reading the the passage first versus the question stem in logical reasoning. Sure, yeah. This is this is something that I do. I read the passage first and then I get my mind wrapped around it. I, I figure out what it's saying and then I read the question stem. And that's what I tell my students to do. But a lot of students of mine ask, you know, well, why not read the question first so I know what I'm looking for, and so on. And usually what I say to them is I I say, well, I get distracted when I read the question first or I'm trying to think too much about what the question is looking for as opposed to just trying to understand the passage. So that's why I don't read it first. But then I tell them it appears to help some people. So if you're really interested, you should try it out. But you, you seem a lot more opposed to it than than I am. And I'm just curious I'm why. Maybe I need to, to change my perspective here. I just I guess I, I definitely don't prefer it, but I'm not as sure why maybe it's it's bad. When I did my social studies homework when I was in the fifth grade, I was assigned to read a chapter and then answer the questions at the end of the chapter. I'm a terrible student. I'm lazy. So what I did was I read the questions and then scanned through the, you know, now I know what I'm looking for. I read the question. Now I know what I'm looking for. Now I'll just scan through the chapter and I'll find the answer. That doesn't work. That that does not help you to comprehend. That hurts you. That keeps you from comprehending. You You're scanning through looking for, you know, quote unquote, the answer. And in doing so, you're not actually engaging with the substance of what's being said in the argument. So it just, I, I really believe that this is not just a, you know, break even strategy. Not even, I don't think this is like a, you don't need this strategy. I think this is a strategy which will actually hurt you because I think it will keep you from comprehending what you're supposed to be reading and comprehending. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people think like, I need to know what I'm looking for. Well, you're always looking for the same thing if you're doing it correctly. You're looking for, why is this argument bullshit? And that one question captures a lot, right? Why is this argument bullshit? Well, it's bullshit because the evidence that they present does not lead to the conclusion that they're trying to claim. And if you've got that, if you can say, why is this argument bullshit, then you can answer any type of question. It does not matter what question they ask you, you've already answered it. Or you've already got like the kernel of the answer. 
But if you go into it going like, well, this is a sufficient assumption question, I'm going to look for the piece of evidence that would connect the, the existing evidence to the desired conclusion. Well, okay, no shit. I mean, that's what you were going to have to do anyway, is you were going to have to find the hole in the argument. Mm-hmm. Like, or you, you read the question stem. I just don't understand. If you read the question stem and it said, okay, all you're looking for is the main conclusion, well, mm-hmm. that's fine. I was going to get the main conclusion anyway. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't read an argument and not get the main conclusion because I'm trying to attack the argument. If I'm attacking the argument, then it's like, what are you trying to claim based on what evidence and why is that bullshit? So yeah. even in the best case, I don't think it helps me at all. And in the worst case, if it's like, you know, how do you strengthen this argument? Well, as I'm reading, okay, so I, I read the question stem first and it says this is a strengthened question. And then as I start reading the argument, I'm going to be trying to strengthen the argument while I'm reading it. But how do I do that? I haven't read the whole argument yet. I mean, I don't I don't even know what the conclusion is of this argument until I've finished it. So how do yeah. I strengthen an argument that I don't know what I'm strengthening? Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, I it it drives me nuts because I I just this is something that's taught all over the place, but I think it's in my mind, it's the number one worst strategy that that most people, you know, have have heard and have attempted. Yeah, yeah. So it's not, we still need to get a, a blueprint instructor on here, give have them give us the best case, I guess, for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the I have heard, and I was today. I picked up um, one of my students had uh, Mike Kim's um, LSAT trainer that book. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that book seems to ha- it has a lot of great reviews, and it seems like it has a lot going for it. But I picked that book up, and it had that strategy in there too of reading the question stem first. And he had all these complicated diagrams about how like some of the questions are flaw based, and then the other ones are based on something else. And some of the questions, you know, if if it's just a must be true question, then you don't need to be looking for the flaw. I think that's their idea is that if it's if it if it turns out to be a conclusion question or a must be true question mm-hmm. then you're not you don't need to be looking for the flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel like if I'm looking for the flaw, if I'm attacking the argument, then if I read the argument and I don't find a flaw and then it says which one of the following must be true, then I go, "Oh, okay, fine." I you know, I that didn't hurt me. I still know what's in the argument because I was trying to argue as I was reading it. Yeah. Well, to add to that, in my experience, because I do read the passage first and then the question, if I if I read a question that turns out to be a must-be-true question, what usually happens is I read it, and I'm for every question, I'm looking for the main conclusion because that's, that's the starting point of everything. Right. And if... I say, wow, well, the first sentence doesn't seem like it. The second sentence doesn't seem like it as I'm reading it. Um, And the third sentence, well, this is just another piece of information. They never drew any conclusion on the basis of any of these. Um, Then I kind of think, okay, well, there doesn't seem to be a conclusion here. And then I look down and say, which one must be true? If the statements of both are true, it's like, oh, well, that's not surprising. My initial analysis was correct. There is no conclusion. And we're just going to take these pieces of information and conclude something new from it. Yeah, so. and you you probably lots of times you get done reading the last sentence of the stimulus and you go, "Oh, this is probably going to be just a must be true question. Like I didn't find any logic there. It was just fact fact fact." 
And then you read the question stem and it says, which one of the following can be properly inferred based on the information above? <laughs> and you go, yep, that's exactly what I was predicting. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I feel like that leads to a more confident approach to the test. When you can predict what question they're going to ask you just based on the passage, mm-hmm. I feel like that builds your confidence. Yeah. Well, it shows you an- you analyzed it right, too. Right, exactly. Um, well, Nathan, I apologize. I have to meet someone soon, so I don't mean to cut our discussion short. No, but. I think this was great. Um, I just want to throw out, we we really appreciate um, support from the listeners, and we really appreciate questions from the listeners. So you can either leave uh, comments and feedback at thinkinglsat.com, or you can email me, uh, Nathan, at foxlsat.com, or Ben at strategyprep.com. Um, we had two listener questions today that we addressed on the show, and we'd love to do more of this in the future. Please also um, find us on iTunes if you can. You can support us in a lot of simple ways just by subscribing to the show. If you feel like rating us, if you feel like writing us a review, any of those things, um, just our little drops in the bucket and they'll help us to spread the word and maybe someday reach our second listener in Mississippi. (laughs) That's right. We want to reach that person. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, Ben, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm. See ya. Bye.